The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest, a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's Where also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Father, we forgot our microphones tonight, so we can put those on now and I will ask, Father, how are you? Well, <laughs> I guess forgetting the microphones might be an indication <laughs> of the condition I'm in right now, but... Hopefully everyone is very tolerant yeah. at this point. I think so. I think so. Uh, well, Father, we have um, various topics to get into tonight from our beloved email inbox. So uh, just jumping right into one uh, that we've had for a while that I've, uh, I've, I've wanted to read to you. Father, on air, this viewer says that he's 79 years of age, which is why uh, he categorizes himself as a traditional Catholic. He says, I only knew the Latin Mass and was in fact a sacristan in high school. Then one day it came as a shock to me that the Mass I was attending was radically different. Um, the priest did not even genuflect after the consecration, uh, but he says he went on to learn about the Novus Ordo. And so now I am looking for where I can go to attend the Latin liturgy. I would like to ask Father Jenkins to teach people uh, like me on how to be truly faithful to the traditional Roman Catholic Church, its dogma and its doctrines. Um, because I wish to remain faithful to the church. He says, I do not think I can rely on my local parish priest. He eyes me with much suspicion and dislike. So, Father Jenkins, please help me, because this must be the crisis of conscience, which Cardinal Ottaviani once pointed out as the fruit of the Novus Ordo. So, Father, what would you recommend for this, this gentleman? Well, uh, the gentleman knows that he has to return to the tradition, practicing traditional Catholic faith. It sounds like he has the traditional Catholic faith, but he sees that it has been abandoned and replaced with something alien to it in his local parish. So in the first place, he should flee from that local parish uh, the same way Lot fled from Sodom and Gomorrah. He should escape from that Novus Ordo parish, and he should, uh, if necessary, stay home and, and practice the traditional Catholic faith as well as he he can, even at home. That's what Catholics used to do when they were in missionary territories, and they might not see a priest for weeks or months at a time. They didn't go to the local uh, Protestant churches or synagogues or mosques or anything of the kind. They simply stayed home and practiced the traditional Catholic faith. So I would, uh, I would, I would ask the gentleman uh, to let us know where he lives. If we know of a real traditional Catholic parish with a real tradition Catholic priest, near him, we can let him know uh, and hopefully get him in contact with them. It wouldn't be the first time we've managed to do that. Um, but in the meantime, if he doesn't know of a real traditional Catholic uh, church to go to, the real traditional Catholic priest to go to, then uh, he should not practice any false religion, such as the Novus Ordo, in the meantime, just to have something to do. Um, he sees the difference and he knows it's not the same as the traditional Catholic faith. 
So anyway, I would recommend that he uh, separate himself from the Novus Ordo entirely. Okay. Now, I mean, as far as following and learning the traditional Catholic faith, I mean, there, there are many sources for traditional Catholic books he can read to nourish his faith. We also have a catechism series here at What Catholics Believe that he can also access. Uh, it's a, a fundamental brief catechism for adults, but... Uh, this fellow might uh, actually benefit from uh, Bishop Morrow's My Catholic Faith, which is much more extensive, or even read uh, the Catechism of the Council of Trent, the Roman Catechism. All of these things are available, readily available to him. He just needs to let us know. Uh, so it, in terms of nourishing his faith by reading, that much he can do. But again, as far as worship goes, going to a real Catholic Mass and receiving the real Catholic sacraments of the Roman Rite, uh, that's something we'd have to direct him to. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Um, well, By the way, we sh we'll keep him in our prayers, certainly, and yeah, uh, realize he's uh, been given a grace by God to see the, the truth of the matter. And God would not have given the grace without giving him the answer also, as well. Yes. Absolutely. A solution. Absolutely. All right. Um, well, then, speaking of Novus Ordo, Father, we have an interesting email that we've had for uh, for far too long now. So I I've wanted to uh, get into this. It's uh, it's titled Francis and Shamanism, mm -hmm. and um, this uh, this viewer he says uh, he identifies himself as a convert from neo shamanistic occultism, and he says I have looked on with amazement at the turning of the Novus Ordo toward precisely that from which I left for the true faith. Uh, nearly a decade ago. So he says, perhaps my experience can lend some small insight into what's coming. Uh, he references uh, one Terence McKenna, an ethnobotanist who traveled to the Amazon. And um, he talks about uh, this um, this Terence McKenna, how he uh, apparently was um, famous for tripping on, quote, heroic doses of DMT and talks about uh, these, these mushrooms there and how this Terence McKenna even identified, he described these mushrooms as a, quote, Christ. And um, so he says that it is therefore an apt substitute for bread and what would be the Amazonian variant of the new rite of the Eucharist. Um, he says there is an explicit connection between these matters and the practices of Wicca and Kabbalah through Aleister Crowley. Um, so he, he says, uh, Father, do you think with, with Francis and everything that um, was going on with the Amazonian rite uh, that, that has been so talked about, um, you think there's, there's uh, he ends by, by saying here that um, his experience gives me a sense for these things, uh, suggests, me, suggests to me that Francis is in on all of these ideas, and therefore I conclude that he is prob probably a practicing Thelemite. Um, what's your thought on this, Father? Do you see a connection between what Francis is trying to do with this Amazonian rite and this Amazonian synod and, and shamanism and uh, having any kind of local native Amazonian substitute uh, and a new rite for the, the Holy Well, Eucharist? I think it's beyond question that Francis is very much aware of and comfortable with the occult. I mean, regarding not only the, the Amazonian synod, the Amazon synod and uh, Pachamama, and uh, various other um, instruments that he's used for worship. I mean, Francis is basically the shaman. He's, he's basically the novus ordo answer to the shaman. You know, he's, he's providing, residing over this synodal church that wants to 
raise all of these uh, indigenous religions, meaning basically pagan mythology. He wants to restore all of these uh, to a place of honor, and he wants to restore their worship. He wants even to uh, actually bring the old shamanistic practices, the shamanistic rituals, into into the, the church, you know, the Nova Soda Church. He wants uh, he wants to uh, not only uh, restore it to the region of the Amazon, but he wants to create an Amazonian rite that actually uh, enshrines these shamanistic rituals. Now we're told, of course, we're told that you know they they, they would not uh, bring any such things in unless they were compatible with Christianity. But Christianity, the way he understands it, so that's 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 a big difference. And um, if you go back to the documents of Vatican II, uh, even the, the first session of Vatican II, you find the same thing was talked about back then. It was talked about openly uh, at the Council itself. We're talking about 1962 now, when John XXIII was still alive and still presiding over, as I say, session one of the Council. Uh, when the bishops met there, uh, one of the first things they did, well, led by the the modernist cardinals of Northern Europe, was to simply um, throw out the four shema, shemata that had been prepared for discussion, and they started with their own their own creations. Here, they started by talking about the liturgy. That was where they started. They later rejected. They later regretted that. Because when they saw how liberal the council had gotten in the course of four sessions, they said if we had only waited till the end to talk about the liturgy, we could have made it much more radical. But, uh, you know, one of the, the first consideration of the council was the liturgy, and they brought in the, the, uh, the missionary bishops, but bishops actually from Germany, and notably from the Rhinelands, from Holland and places like that, missionary bishops testified that they had already been incorporating indigenous practices into their liturgies, already before Vatican II they were doing this. And uh, they were actually proposing a liturgy parallel to the traditional Roman rite. Originally they said they didn't want to do away with the traditional Roman rite, they didn't want to replace the traditional Roman rite of Mass, they just wanted something parallel that they could use, let's say, in mission fields for indigenous peoples, using things with which they were familiar from their culture, a culture, unfortunately, very often uh, steeped in, in pagan lore. Uh, this is what Francis wants to uh, reestablish. He wants to reestablish his reestablish paganism, and he's doing a very fine job of it. So um, I think uh, our, our writer there might very well uh, recognize that Francis is himself is sort of, uh, in a sense, being the pontifical shaman uh, in in overseeing the resurrection of these dead rites, these dead pagan rites of animism and other um, pagan practices, and want to incorporate them uh, and thereby uh, adulterate and um, actually uh, create blasphemous liturgies. Remember, remember when the uh, two young women uh, went to Francis, um, the one woman wearing the red cord of the Kabbal, the Kabbal, the Jewish Kabbal, 
and certainly an occult society, if ever there was one. And they handed him that uh, witch's stang to carry and uh, told him they wanted him to carry it uh, in place of a crucifix or anything resembling a crucifix to the first liturgy of the World Youth Day. And he did. He carried that witch's stang. And it's uh, the height of naivete to think that he didn't know what that was or that no one around him knew what that was or couldn't find out what it was, <laughs> couldn't identify it. No, he was very clear in his understanding of what this was here. Um, so again, I mean, the man is, uh, as he's probably more comfortable with paganistic practices of the so-called indigenous religions of old, that is ancient paganism and ancient pagan, uh, rituals, more comfortable with those things than he is with the traditional mass of the church. The traditional Latin liturgy of the church makes him very uncomfortable. He detests it. He's made no, no secret of it. He's very comfortable carrying Pachamama around. He's very comfortable having Pachamama uh, worshipped. He rejoices in the fact that Pachamama was actually uh, worshipped in rituals right there in St. Peter's Basilica. At the same time, he's banning traditional Latin masses from being offered there. What does that tell you? What more do you need to know about this man? He's a pagan shaman. He's done all but come out and just announce it to the world. But his words speak much louder. His, his actions speak much louder than his words. Wow. So I would say, yes, when this gentleman writes, what does he say, Francis and shamanistic practices? Yeah, Francis, say, well, Francis and shamanism. Well, there you are. Yes. I think he's on the right track there. Father, how, how could any... Um, any would-be Catholic go along with, with this idea? I mean, isn't this opposed to the very nature of Catholicism and being universal and having one God, um, one religion that, that we practice? And here now, with all of these different uh, so-called rites uh, that that the modernists want to have, isn't this opposed to the very nature of but Catholicism? Remember, Francis is a modernist, okay? And for a modernist, faith is uh, the individual person's experience of the divine, whatever it is, just the divine. He, he experiences with him, within himself the divine something, okay? So the uh, worship of Pachamama is every bit as much a divine revelation as belief in Jesus Christ. Every bit as much. I mean, all of these things are valid uh, faith. And remember, the, the modernist idea is that all faith comes from a faith experience, and that is an individual thing. It's not really a revolution, revelation, revelation, uh, let's say, spoken of by so much by prophets, except so far as to say that prophets have religious experiences of their own, and then when they speak of them, they attract followers. And, uh, but those religious experiences of the prophets then go on to be kind of institutionalized in, in uh, religions. And you can tell the value or the, what they would consider the vitality of a religious experience uh, by whether or not, by its staying power. So every religion that is in the world today surviving um, has staying power. And every religion that is flourishing and increasing in numbers, again, shows its truth. It is true insofar as it is, it is vital. It's a result of what he calls vital imminence, the, the modernist. 
And uh, so religions are actually showing just their value, the, their, their value as quote-unquote truth, which is all relative, uh, based upon how they're flourishing in the world today. Because they represent modern man's mentality and his experience of God. Um, the, um, the, the, the experiences of God that are not adapting to the modern times eventually die out. They're not evolving with the modern mind, uh, the modern concept of who God is or who he should be for modern man. And so, um, you know, Francis, uh, by his own, uh, by his own, you know, if, 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 terms of expression there. He, he doesn't like dogma, he doesn't like doctrine because these things are fixed. They're fixed truths. And uh, he doesn't believe there is such a thing. The faith experience is an ongoing, evolving thing. And uh, religion must, must all yield to that evolving faith experience of mankind or that religion will die. So, Father, could we say that, that modernism is, is responsible for the kind of modern-day resurgence of paganism that we've seen because I mean what you're just oh describing, absolutely yeah. it sounds like it encourages um, mm. supports uh, it, 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 it modernism is is the uh, is the heresy it's a complexus of all heresies Saint, Saint Pius X called it the synthesis of all the heresies because it redefines faith redefines the very meaning of faith and basically what modernism does according to its own terms it quote unquote validates the old pagan religions. And it's, it's kind of odd because at the same time, modernism says that religion, the truthfulness of religions or the vitality of religions uh, are manifested by the fact that they survive and they flourish in the world. And yet the same principle is being used to rehabilitate religions that have long faded from the stage of the world and have been uh, relegated to the past, the deep, deep dark past. Uh, but modernism wants to resurrect them, as though this is this primitive uh, faith experience of mankind should be the modern faith experience of mankind even now. Yeah. That modern mankind should rediscover the pagan experience of who God really is, ultimately, ultimately, that man himself yeah. is man, is God, the great shaman, right? Yeah. Well, um, Father, I don't know if you're prepared to, to discuss this or not, but he, um, the writer, he mentions the uh, so-called uh, occult renaissance in Italy during the time of Pope Alexander VI, and he asks mm -hmm. if, if you could comment on that and say if what's going on today in the modern-day resurgence of paganism uh, that we see, is that more serious than what we saw in the time of uh, the, the occult renaissance during Pope Alexander VI? Well, during the Renaissance, there was a return to, uh, you know, Greek culture, ancient Greek and Latin culture, often Greek. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the historical origins of that are rather interesting because um, Constantinople fell in the year 1453. The Muslims finally succeeded, finally succeeded in uh, breaking through the, the great walls of Constantinople and the cruelties and barbar barbarisms that they committed against the population is just horrible. Remember that, um, you know, the, the, the Greeks had broken away from the Catholic Church in the year uh, 1054, 11, uh, 1054, 
And so they were actually not part of the Catholic Church at that time. Um, in 1453, when the uh, Turks finally managed to, uh, as I say, take Constantinople, many of the scholars had fled from the city, and they actually came to the West seeking refuge. They brought with them, again, knowledge of Greek culture and the Greek history. And uh, they contributed quite a bit to the, the Renaissance. And uh, the, the, the bringing of um, ancient Greek knowledge and lore and so on often came, up, came with them. And uh, so they contributed to a great rise of interest, again, in ancient Greek culture. And that ancient Greek culture was, was uh, pagan. Pagan, yeah. And uh, th thoroughly humanistic, right? Um, and so there were actually two, um, two tendencies, two great tendencies in the, Re in the uh, Renaissance. One was uh, a, what we'd call a Christian humanism, um, which um, glorified Christ and saw in the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ what was really should be humanism with the soul and the intellect and the, uh, the will and the purification of that. So there was a there was a legitimate Christian humanism there, but there was also a very great resurgence in interest in pagan humanism. And I think that's what our writer is referring to. And uh, unfortunately, this, this pagan humanism actually led to the Enlightenment, so-called. And uh, the Enlightenment itself, uh, it's led to the, well, actually, resurgence, ultimately, of Gnosticism in the West, the idea of man the divine, the measure of all things. Man is a measure of all things. And um, this uh, certainly um, rekindled a, an enormous interest in pagan art and pagan mythology. Again, pagan mythology, the root of their basic religion of the imagination. <laughs> so, in the Renaissance, you saw a great deal of Christian art. Some of the greatest artists of the time devoted their talents to depicting scenes from sacred scripture and so on. But also at the same at the same time, those those great artists also depicted the pagan scenes of old, uh, Bacchus and Adonis and Apollo and all the rest. They depicted them in the most Mm, uh, very, what would you say, uh, voluptuous sort of way. It made it very attractive. <laughs> Excuse me. And often it was a matter of who their benefactors, or who their patrons were, and what they were paying for, and what kind of art they wanted to adorn their, their uh, great halls and their palaces, or the churches, for that matter. And... Um, so simultaneously, there was a, a, a you know a great interest in Christian art, um, and th those those great artists who painted these very powerful scenes from sacred scripture, such as Caravaggio and, and Tiziano, uh, painting scenes from uh, the Bible. Um, also, they would paint these very, as I say, voluptuous scenes from pagan. Bacchanalia and, and pagan feasting and uh, scenes of pagan mythology. So it, it was really a, uh, what would you call it? I mean, it's, uh, it was a class of, 
class of civilizations, you know, between Christian society and pagan society, where in a sense, competing with each other there for the imagination and for the allegiance of the people. Mm-hmm. But is what we're seeing today more more serious than that, you think? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, when you have... Um, well, you mentioned Alexander VI. Alexander VI was actually held up as an example, or as the example of what the Freemasons did not want in a pope. Remember the permanent instruction of the Alta Vedita? Uh, Nubius, the uh, head of the, uh, the leading lodges of the Freemasons, the Alta Vendita in Italy, back in the early 1800s, actually was prescribing a program of infiltrating the church. Uh, basically, what he described is a plan to decatholicize the world by decatholicizing the Catholic Church by decatholicizing the Pope, by decatholicizing the clergy, by decatholicizing the society, and especially the family. Because the vocations would come out of those families, would grow up within the paganized society, and those vocations would go on to become the future bishops, cardinals, and popes. And then the Pope, if he were, in fact, um, not a Freemason, but think like a Freemason, if he were a worldly pagan-thinking man. He could decatholicize the church, and then the decatholicized church would decatholicize the world. That's how the, uh, in a nutshell, what the uh, permanent instruction was calling for. And the way to decatholicize society was to corrupt it with all kinds of impurity and immorality. Paganism, resurgent paganism, has a lot to do with introducing just that. In uh, re- reintroducing every manner of uh, lewdness and lascivious living, okay, especially to to not only turn fathers away from their families, but to corrupt women. Vindex, uh, one of the writers who responded to Nubius's call to infiltrate the church, said, "Well, the, the only way you're going to be to destroy the church really is by destroying woman, and you have to do that by degrading her, by destroying her, her purity and her." demureness and make her make her uh, like a, a hellion and an impure woman. Um, so he said, what we want is corruption en masse. We want, we want total corruption. We have to sow the seeds of corruption in, in Catholic societies in order to destroy uh, Catholicism in the family and to carry out the program, right? And he knew what he was talking about. We see that happening before our very eyes. It's already been happening for quite some time now. But uh, in any case, when you have a, a, a pontiff of, the, of a new order that's been created um, uh, that has invaded the church and their institutions, and he himself right, is um, basically uh, minimizing the evil of adultery, and, um, and, and, and other, other forms of perversity, minimizing the evil. Even if he speaks out against it, still, nonetheless, you know, uh, as far as in action again, in action, doing nothing, actually, by his actions, glorifying those who promote these things, frankly, even while once in a while he speaks against it, by action, he is glorifying those who promote these evil, perverse things. Um, then he himself is carrying out this program. He's an agent of their program. 
<laughs> and the, to that extent, yes, this is much worse now than it ever was during the uh, during the <clears throat> Renaissance, during the Enlightenment. <clears throat> I mentioned uh, Nubius, the writer of the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita, the call to infiltrate the church. <clears throat> he actually says, well, what kind of pope do we want? If we want a pope, we'll decatholicize the church, and so that that corrupt church will decatholicize society. Uh, all the world, uh, we don't want a pope like Alexander VI, the very man whom this gentleman mentioned. He says, we don't want him because he was a true libertine, a real Borgia. And uh, as far as his own personal moral life, it was a shambles and a scandal. But, he says, the reason why we don't want him and Alexander VI is because he was a loyal son of the church and he always acted to defend and protect the church. So, oddly enough, even though Alexander VI was indeed a Borgia pope, and he was very morally corrupt, at least if we can believe all the stories about him coming out of largely Protestant literature, unfortunately, at the time, uh, or after, subsequent to that, the criticisms of him. Um, nonetheless, um, he would still protect the church, which condemned the very things that he was doing. He never tried to change Catholic doctrine to make adultery okay. Uh, he never tried to legitimize his own sins. Um, and uh, the, the, the writer Nubius goes on to describe the Pope they do want, and he names Clement XIV. Clement XIV, he calls him by his family name, Ganganelli. Clement XIV was a Franciscan. He was, obviously, a successor to Clement XIII. Clement XIII, in the late 1700s, was a very profoundly Catholic pope. I mean, he's the one who uh, instituted the great feasts of the Sacred Heart, uh, the, the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary, as it was called, uh, especially starting with Poland. And he, he would not yield to the pressure of the Freemasons, especially the Freemasonic prime ministers, of uh, France and uh, and uh, Germany, Prussia, and uh, well, Spain and Portugal. He would not yield to that pressure to condemn to uh, to uh, condemn the Jesuits, who at that time were very, very great champions of the Church and the faith. He would not yield to that pressure. Uh, it was Voltaire who had said uh, almost two hundred years before. Clement the Fourteenth, Clement the Thirteenth, I should say, that uh, to suppress the church, you have to begin by suppressing the Jesuits, because the Jesuits were the great champions of the faith back then, and the educators of Europe. Right? That's what Voltaire said. So uh, there was an enormous amount of pressure being brought on the Holy See in the 1700s to suppress the Jesuits. That is to basically cut its own throat, really, or destroy its own champions of faith. Clement the Thirteenth would never give in to that. He was very strong. As soon as he died, a man whom he himself had promoted to be a cardinal uh, actually uh, turned against the Jesuits. He was a man subject to pressure. He was a man who was favored by the, by the Freemasons to become the next pope, and he did. He became Clement XIV. And he did, he did the Freemasons' will. He did, he did the dirty deed for them. Um... That's why Nubius says in the permanent instruction, we need another pope like Ganganelli. 
Nubia says he handed himself bound hand and foot over to the ministers of the Bourbons who controlled him, and he did their will. So he was actually functioning, as it were, uh, as an agent of the Freemasons, perhaps without him being aware of it. But it's hard to believe he wasn't aware. Why? You know what? You know what Nubia says in the permanent instruction? Because he was subject to flattery and fear. They could flatter him into doing the will, their will, or they could terrify him into doing, doing their will. Now, that's pretty scary when you think about it, especially when you look at these Novus Ordo popes, so-called, and how the Freemasons, Freemasons have lavished praise on them, given them so many awards, and talked about them as being so enlightened. And here the Freemasons back in the early 1800s were talking about Ganganelli, who just, you know, 30 years before, had been subject to that flattery, and they got him to do their will, which was uh, basically to cripple, to wound the church terribly. Now they say they need another one just like him. So that's what they set their target. That's what they set as their target to create another pontiff like Ganganelli, whose loyalty would not be to the church, but would be subject to uh, being intimidated by the forces of the world, or even worse, uh, subject to their flattery. You know, you know what comes to mind, Tom? John Paul II going into the stadiums, you know, going into giant stadium. Uh, and all the thousands of people doing the wave, shouting, JP2, we love you. Oh, he ate that up. I mean, he was a Schauspieler. He was, a, uh, he was an actor. He loved that. He loved the audience. He loved the crowds. You know? Oh, he, took, he, he ate that up. The World Youth Day, he just loved that kind of thing. These big demonstrations, but they weren't Catholic. They weren't Catholic, quite the contrary. So anyway, uh, I think this gentleman is definitely on the right track. Yeah, wow. Okay. Well, um, <clears throat> another email. I guess we could change topics a little bit, Father. Um, this viewer says, uh, I was wondering if the church fathers ever made any comments about Zoroaster or the Zoroastrian uh, religion. He says, I see many parallels of teachings with Christianity, such as belief in one God, uh, belief in resurrection and angels and their principles of right thought, right words, and right actions seem to align with Christian morality. Uh, so do you see any kind of uh, correlation between Christianity and Zoroastrianism? And uh, in particular, did the Church Fathers ever make any comment that you're aware of on Zoroaster? Uh, in particular about the Church Fathers, I'm not aware of any statements of the Church Fathers about Zoroaster. Uh, that doesn't mean that none of the Church Fathers did comment on that, but I... I don't. I have no knowledge of that. Um, Zarathustra is kind of the uh, the Persian rendering of that, and um, he seems to have originated in Persia, right? Basically, Iran, right. Iraq, and um, basically the Iranian Empire at the time. Um, there are estimates of Zarathustra's life. Um, taking place as much as 2,000 years before Christ was born. Mm, they have no real good timeline there. 
It's, it seems that the more the consensus is that he was made basically about five to six hundred years before before Christ was born. Okay, and he um, was born into a pagan society uh, with multiple gods and goddesses and all the rest. But he uh, he um, Zarathustra or uh, Zoroaster, as he was known in the, the Greek speaking world. Uh, did talk about uh, one supreme being, if you want to call it that, or a creator God. But they say they say he talked about a creator. But see, there's there's a departure right there. Even though they talk about him being a creator, the idea of uh, our God, the true God, our God, whom the Father, the Father of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Um, is truly a creator and that he, he willed things into being from nothingness. He didn't emanate these out of his own substance, you know. But it's pretty clear that that uh, uh, Mazda, right? Uh, Ahura, uh, his name Ahura Mazda, I think, that he, uh, this creator god, as they call him, actually emanated out uh, the, the world. So that separates, you know, the uh, the pagan idea, even the pagan philosophical idea of the Greeks, of a, a homonos, a one one initial uh, being or whatever you want to call it, emanating out things that became the the world, you know, uh, and um, that all things emanated from him as sort of part of his substance being. Uh, sort of like a stain spreading out, you know. But this does not seem to indicate the true idea of creation that we know of, um, of the the actual work of the true God. In other words, the idea of emanation always involves the idea of pantheism, that the entire world just is, is kind of God spread out, and the idea that it's all going to be sort of like sucked back into God again in the end, uh, that he's going to draw it all back to himself again. You know, that's what you get with the idea of emanation. Uh, creation, not at all. So there's that's a very fundamental difference between the the system of uh, uh, Zarathustra and. Uh, uh, the true teaching of, of Christianity. Um, now, you know, e- even as far as the, uh, you know, the, the code of morality, um, there's no place for asceticism in Zoroastrianism. Uh, there's just no place for it. And asceticism is a very important part of Christianity. Our Lord himself taught that. Um, as far as just the general idea of, of do good and don't do evil, uh, that there's an evil force in the world. Um, well, of course, that's rather obvious. In fact, if you if you look at um, Zoroastrianism, as it's called, you find a very uh, naturalistic explanation for everything in it. It could well be just another example of some kind of philosopher uh, looking at the situation of the world and... Uh, Coming up with the optimistic view, well, good will triumph, and there is a good God, and there's an evil force, and um, 
that we human beings are kind of caught in the middle and our job is to try to side with the good and to make the good triumph by doing good things. I mean, uh, I think St. Paul would just say uh, very simply, well, the pagans have a law in their hearts that God has placed there, and it's the natural law. So, I mean, virtually everything that Zarathustra described here, and which became, and there, there are different uh, flavors of Zoroastrianism, you might say, um, and uh, <coughs> they, I understand that modern estimates even put the uh, adherence of classical Zoroastrianism worldwide at about 110 to 120,000 people at most. Um, why? Well, because Islam has basically persecuted them almost out of existence. Uh, as they have the Yazidis and so on, um, ruthlessly, brutally, cruelly uh, persecuting them. But if you were to examine uh, the um, teachings of uh, Zarathustra as they were expressed in what we know as Zoroastrianism today, you'd say that all of this could be explained as merely a naturalistic, uh, from naturalistic reflection upon the world as it is. Um, but it does raise an interesting, uh, an interesting apologetic question, because there are those who want to say, well, look, in the ancient world there were these beliefs that correspond to Christianity. For example, the Gilgamesh epic about the flood. Well, my goodness, isn't that where Noah got his ideas? You know? <clears throat> they want to say, oh, we have the record of that from the Gilgamesh epic, and we have uh, the flood of Noah, so clearly it was Noah who got this from Gilgamesh. Why it never works the other way, I don't know. <laughs> Why they don't say that, well, maybe uh, Noah's account of the flood and what came afterwards actually influenced the Gilgamesh epic, and, you know, but it never goes that way for those who want to try to tell you that Christianity is basically derived from ancient pagan myths. This is what the Gnostics would have you believe today. And even uh, the Code of Hammurabi, I mean, the Code of Hammurabi uh, basically enshrines, they say, essentially the Ten Commandments of Moses. And so that's where Moses got the Ten Commandments. He didn't get them from God on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. He, he had a, a, a paperback copy of the Code of Hammurabi in his back pocket, and he just carried it around with him. And that's where he got the Ten Commandments. Now, they will never grant you that, well, maybe the Ten Commandments uh, given by God to Moses, maybe Hammurabi actually, uh, because the people were wandering uh, through the deserts and so on, and they were, uh, they were known to be itinerant, maybe it came across the desk of Hammurabi, and uh, he, he basically thought, hey, this sounds pretty good. I think I'll issue these for my own kingdom because these are good rules. It, does, it never works that way for some reason because of their prejudice against, of course, our faith. You know, they want to say it all derived from paganism, exactly what the modernists would have you believe. Okay, exactly what the modernists would have you believe today. But if you look at the Code of Hammurabi, and even if you look at the Ten Commandments, I mean, everything in the Ten Commandments is exactly the natural law. I mean, the Church herself has told us infallibly at Vatican I, that the human intellect is capable of arriving at the truth of God's existence and to know of God's certain fundamental characteristics, we might say. That the human mind can reach that, naturally speaking. It does. So, technically speaking, 
uh, it doesn't require a, 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 a revelation from God. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. I mean, there were pagan societies who had those rules. They're part of the natural law. Exactly what St. Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2 when he talks about even pagans have a law written in their heart that they can follow and be faithful uh, by, by adhering to um, the laws that God placed there, okay? It doesn't necessarily, uh, it's not going to save their souls, just having natural virtue, obviously. You have to have faith, hope, and charity to save your soul. But St. Paul's talking about the law necessary, right, not to offend God and to keep that natural law. Even the pagans have that. So we see the Code of Hammurabi. Uh, it's totally gratuitous to say that Moses derived the Ten Commandments from it, uh, as it is totally gratuitous to say that Noah derived the story of the flood out of the writings of Hammurabi, of uh, Gilgamesh. Um, um, but it, it does form itself into an apologetical question when people try to use those ancient things as an argument uh, that Christianity grew out of the, these ancient pagan myths. Quite the contrary. If you look at Zoroaster in Iran, okay, you find that his area, that area of the world, is very much, you know, in the area of the, of the four great rivers of paradise, right? So, you know, the, the thought comes down, well, you know, his idea of the, the one creator God, even though he got him quite wrong if he's talking about emanation from him, uh, could very well have come down from Adam and Eve and been passed down. I mean, that's not the old era of traditionalism. Actually, if you look that up, it has a different meaning, of course, uh, than what we're talking about by being traditional Catholic. Um, but there was an era called traditionalism back when, which had the idea that, well, you know, the fundamental concepts of faith were passed on from generation to generation from the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, to their children, and came down through the centuries through Abraham and Moses. And uh, as though God had not actually revealed to them and called them, you know, but it was just sort of handed down, naturally speaking, from generation to generation. But nonetheless, I mean, we know how important uh, history in the form of their, their, their uh, legend and their mythology and passing down from generation to generation the stories of old. We know how, how important that was. And so to say that there's no reason why we could not think that Zoroaster might indeed have been privy to the stories of the ancient creation and that there were in fact the stories of the creation that had come down to him and that he wove them into kind of a, uh, uh, a, a religion of his own, of his own making. You know? Basically, they attribute that to him. Uh, he created the basis, the basis of uh, just a kind of an ethical existence. If you, if you were to compare uh, Zarathustra, you might actually uh, be looking for the ethics of uh, Socrates as to how to have a happy life, how to get along well in the world. But I don't think anybody suggested the Socrates. Socrates created Christianity. Why would anybody look for Zarathustra or Zoroaster as being the, the source of, 
uh, Christian morality. You know, so I, I think it is gratuitous to say that. Um, I, I don't think no, the gentleman is implying this. I, I didn't. I, you know, you just read, read me what you said there. I don't know that he's implying that a Christian. Um, uh, Catholic belief or morality uh, somehow is traceable to the teachings of Zoroaster, but I think he just asked, are they related to each yeah. other? Yeah. yeah. Insofar as they have a common basis in the natural law, I guess you could say that they, they could have okay. some relation with each other. But I don't think Christ was influenced by Zoroaster, <laughs> certainly. No. Okay. All right, well, um, I thought we could end with, certainly this, not. with this, Father, um, from the same viewer. He says... Uh, that I sometimes struggle with the idea that God focused his covenant with such a small and insignificant group of tribes known as Israel. Would this mean that the vast majority of humanity during this period of history were not offered salvation from God? Or was uh, God's major focus with Israel, but he also had prophets from other nations proclaiming monotheism and his laws that were written in our hearts? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it is a fact that God chose Abraham, okay? And uh, all the Hebrews are descended from him, you know. I mean, not all Jews are descended from Abraham, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, the uh, um, Ashkenazi Jews, right, converts from the steppes of Africa, of, of uh, Asia, I should say. Um, but, and they are not really descended from Abraham. Right. But... Um, the fact is, God did choose Abraham, and he chose Abraham for a reason. The reason actually is given to us that Abraham uh, was not perfect, okay? When, when he and Sarah had left their tribal lands at God's insistence, right, at God's direction, they went to Egypt, and there uh, Abraham was afraid that... Um, uh, Pharaoh or others might kill him in order to take his wife because Sarah was a very beautiful woman. So Abraham instructed her to tell everyone that he was Abraham's sister. And so were there's, there were those who wanted to have a romantic relationship with Sarah. And when they discovered that she was already married, and this kind of shows you how the reverence they had for marriage back then and not violating the marriage vows, that when Pharaoh found out that Sarah was not Abraham's sister, but she was his wife, Pharaoh was horrified, fearing that God would punish him severely for committing adultery with the wife of this visitor. That's how, you know, in a sense, sacred they considered that, <laughs> to be sacred in the eyes of God, the marriage bond. And there it was just marriage. It wasn't even the sac a sacrament of matrimony. And so uh, Pharaoh lavished gifts on Abraham and told him to go away. You know, it was kind of curious in this sense that hundreds of years later, Pharaoh and the people of Egypt were going to lavish gifts on the on the descendants of Abraham and tell him, "Get out of Egypt." You know, we are being punished severely because of your your presence here. So there's kind of a historical parallel there, oddly enough. Um, but um, so Abraham, you know, was not the, the, the most courageous individual. God didn't choose him for that. But what God chose him for was he, his obedience. I mean, he had left, he had left his land, his native land, right? 
his ancestral land. And he did travel, and he traveled into foreign unknown air regions. Uh, he had his brother Lot, you know. Um, they, uh, Abraham was called upon by God finally to sacrifice, to sacrifice the son born of Sarah, miraculously born of Sarah and himself at, at, an, at an advanced age. And Abraham was willing to do that. And the fact that Abraham was willing to do God's will, uh, not knowing how this could be done, because God had told Abraham that he would be um, basically the forefather of great nations, you know, that would number more than the sands of the earth and so on, and that that would be through Isaac. And here he was being commanded by the same God who'd made that promise to take Isaac and to offer him in sacrifice. But such was Abraham's faith in God that he was willing to do what to him he could not understand. He just couldn't understand how it could be. And yet he had such faith and such reverence that he was willing to follow God's orders. And you know what happened, of course, we all know that an angel stayed Abraham's hand. But God said to him, because you were willing to do this, I can reconfirm my promises to you. And, of course, we see the significance of what God asked Abraham to do when God sent his own divine son into the world and had him, like Isaac, carrying the wood on his own shoulders up the Mount of Calvary to be crucified there. That God was willing to do for us uh, what he did not actually require of Abraham. But Abraham was willing. And therefore, Abraham... Uh, actually has become known as the father of faith. Uh, and, and even, uh, you know, the, the title of father he has in a special way uh, under God himself, God the Father, because God the Father was willing to uh, offer his son. Uh, willingly, the son was willing to be offered, as Isaac was willing. Isaac, too, was willing to be offered in obedience to God. That's the reverence and the faith they had. So, um, God chose Abraham, and that, I mean, basically explains why all the descendants of Abraham were those who were chosen. They were chosen to receive that Redeemer, who would be the fulfillment of that promise. But does that mean that God did not offer, that he did not even offer salvation to those who were not of Abraham? Well, uh, did not offer a salvation to them, um, in the sense that those who uh, were not descendants of Abraham and had no knowledge of the Savior were all just condemned to hell with no hope whatsoever. Right. Well, uh, technically speaking, they would. What, what would Saint Paul say when he said in Saint in, in Romans that they had a law, you know, that would um, enable them to um, be true to at least not offend God. Um, could God, you know, reveal to them? We don't know this, okay? It's just kind of a speculation. Could God reveal to them truths that they would need to know in order to make an act of faith and be saved? I don't know. Uh, God does want not the death of the sinner, but that he be converted and live. But it is a fact that without the Savior, without a belief and a hope and a love for the promised Redeemer, before he came and after now that he has come, it is impossible for any soul to be saved. 
And so uh, if, if the idea is that uh, outside of Abraham and the promise made to Abraham and his descendants and their belief in the coming Redeemer and their fidelity to him in advance, um, if th- there's no salvation outside of that, then they were all condemned. They would all have to be dead. One thing we know absolutely certain, there is no salvation without Christ. And there is no salvation outside of the church that Christ himself established. Any more than there is salvation without him. It's a, it's a matter of fact, divine Catholic faith. right? Um, how God handles uh, what he does with his graces, um, we cannot limit him in this regard. We can only go by what he has revealed to us. And what he has revealed to us is that without faith and hope and a certain love to obey uh, Christ, um, even among the patriarchs of old, before our Lord came, um, that there could be no possible salvation then or now, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Well, Father, uh, this is all been very enlightening. I thank you for it. Could we um, possibly end with something a bit uh, uplifting? And um, with uh, now that we're we're in the uh, in the month of June. Now, which is dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Could you speak a few words on the Sacred Heart, Father? Well, yes. Uh, you know, the, uh, the Sacred Heart of Jesus has been a devotion in the Church from the time of St. Augustine and before. Uh, you read in the Gospel of St. John uh, about the heart of our Lord uh, being pierced. And that was, in a sense, our Lord's death certificate. The fact that the soldier ran the broad spear into our Lord's side and actually opened his heart and there flowed forth blood and water. St. Augustine talked about that blood and water flowing from the heart of Jesus being the foundation of the church and like the birth of the church, as it were, uh, in her sacraments, the water symbolizing baptism and the, the blood itself symbolizing the Holy Eucharist, right? Uh, St. Augustine uh, had a great devotion to the, the heart of Jesus, but even before him, um, this, this idea of the piercing of the heart of our Lord was, as I mentioned, kind of a death certificate. Notice when uh, our Lord appeared to the apostles the night of the resurrection, what did he show them? He showed them his wounds. He showed them the wounds in his hand, and hands, and he showed them the wound in his side, and later on, when Thomas, the apostle who had been missing at the time, came, came back, joined them, heard what had happened, and said, unless I do this, unless I see these things. But he even went one beyond that. He said, unless I put my fingers into the, the holes in the hands and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. In other words, just seeing would not be enough for him. He had to actually probe the wounds. You know? And our Lord appeared to him and showed him <laughs> those wounds. And when Thomas saw the, the open side of our Lord, I mean, that wound went right through the heart of our Lord. It opened his heart, and there he is standing, standing very much alive and glorified before Thomas. I mean, Thomas's doubts were all completely vanquished. Thomas's exclamation, my Lord and my God, was, came from the depths of his, of his soul, you know. But, uh, but our Lord said, uh, our Lord had said to him, be not unbelieving but believing and uh, that's what our lord said after thomas's doubts had been vanquished 
Um, you know, blessed are those who have not seen but have believed, okay? And he's talking about all of us today who believe in him. And um, so, again, the devotion to the heart of our Lord as the emblem of his life and death and resurrection, it comes to us right from the very beginning. In the very concluding pages of St. John's Gospel, uh, you know, enshrine that. And um, so it was, you know, throughout the history, uh, even in the shroud itself, and the, and the, and the very shroud that uh, the apostles gathered from the tomb, the empty tomb, they, they have there the image of uh, basically the wound, but they have more than the image of the wound, they actually have the blood and the blood serum that flowed from the wound. So the wound is pictured there, but the blood that is there is not just a picture of the blood, it is actually blood and blood serum that flowed from the wound, and it's on the cloth itself. And uh, so our Lord himself left that testimony. Again, a death certificate that he had not been taken down live from the cross, that he died on that cross. And uh, when he rose, he truly rose from the dead. Okay, it's a statement made to us even to this day. Uh, our Lord has given us that shroud, in a sense, as his death certificate. Uh, not only a certificate of his death, but a certificate of his resurrection, too. Right? And so, in any case, uh, there have been new discoveries on the shroud, by the way, and I recommend people go and look at what they found. They're quite phenomenal, remarkable things. As they, they, they turn up their, their instruments, tune them up, and, and examined uh, the evidence of the shroud, they're finding more and more wonderful things about our Lord's, well, passion, death, resurrection. But in any case, the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ is a true heart of flesh. It's a, it is a human heart. It is the human heart of a human body, of a of really which belongs to human nature. And uh, our Lord's humanity was perfect humanity. Uh, and yet we cannot refer to our Lord as a human being because when we use the word being in a philosophical and theological sense, we mean the very source of his existence. And the existence comes to the person, and the person is the divine being of God. And so there's one divine person of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And therefore, he is a, the, a divine being. But there's no separate human being there, as though there were a separate human person. There's one person, and that's the divine person of God who took human nature uh, to suffer, to literally suffer. God knows what it is to suffer. Everything we read about in his passion, and more than we can read about, the anguish that is beyond the power of human imagination. Uh, we can imagine what it feels like to hang by nails through your wrists and suffer. But to imagine the anguish of our Lord when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We can't imagine that. Um, so all of that has to do with the heart of our Lord. I mean, he experienced all these things. And so this really is the heart of God. And he is united, hypostatically, as we say, that human nature with his own divine nature in his person. Uh, so we actually adore the heart of Jesus as belonging to the person of God. It's God's actual human heart. 
Now, it's not just a symbol of his love. It's much more than that. It goes way beyond being a mere symbol of God's love. There are lots of symbols of these things, but this is not just a symbol. It is the reality. It is, it is, it is actually the, a heart of God himself that he took to himself, precisely that it would beat here on earth to keep him alive, to live among us, teach us, perform miracles, and finally um, uh, hang on the cross and be pierced and, sti- and stilled okay, by our perfidy and our malice, and uh, yet even that could not kill him because of the divine power within him. Um, So we celebrate during this month of June the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and we have every reason to do so. We have the Litany of the Sacred Heart, which the Church itself has given to us. We should be praying that every single day, especially during this month of June. And, of course, we have Corpus Christi now, uh, which will be tomorrow, uh, the processions with the benedictions, the altars, and so on. And again, in the in the host, we have the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Um, the actual Heart of Jesus, which uh, was pierced by the lance, and which was um, uh, witnessed by Thomas and the other apostles before him, that actually Heart of Jesus is really in is that host, so to speak. You know, it is present there on that altar. The priest elevates the sacred heart of Jesus, literally elevates the sacred heart of Jesus when he elevates the host. And when he places it on the tongue of the communicant, he's actually giving them the actual heart of Jesus. What Thomas said, unless I place my hands into the wound in his heart, his open heart, I will not believe. That very heart is what the priest gives to a person when he receives our Lord in Holy Communion. As I mentioned in a recent meeting with uh, the Catholic Men for Christ the King, there's a very poignant moment in the Mass, I think I might have mentioned it during one of the programs too, where the priest has just consecrated the sacred host, and he's placed it back on the corporal, but then he has to consecrate the chalice. And to do that, he actually bows over, and takes the chalice in his hands, and bowed over there the altar, is when he consecrates the, the chalice, the precious blood. But as he's bowed over, the the host, the very heart of Jesus there, is, well, his, his own heart as a priest is actually brought right over the heart of our Lord as he's consecrating the precious blood. In fact, it's so intimate, so close, they have to be careful that if he has the vestments, which he does, they don't bunch up and they don't, uh, as it were, crowd the host. He's got to make sure he doesn't, you know, contact the host with the vestments. He's so close to that. He's got to be watchful of that. But as he's consecrating the precious blood there, he's actually uh, placing his own heart, like St. John, the apostle at the Last Supper, his own heart very near the heart of our Lord, there in the Blessed Sacrament. So it's a very poignant reminder to the priest, you know, the centrality of the Church's devotion to the Sacred Heart and all that it means. Um, so, in any case, um, you know, to, to close, I would just mention that um, there was one heart that was the closest of all, so much so, so close was that to the heart of Jesus, that the Church actually referred to the feast as the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary, as though they were one when Pope, Pi, uh, Pope Clement XIII approved that feast in the 1770s, I think, 
Um, that's how it was referred to. Uh, St. John Eudes, E-U-D-E-S, was the prime proponent of that feast, like uh, Sacred Hearts. And um, his wish was granted to him, especially beginning with Poland, the bishops of Poland, to honor the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary. And I suppose to some that sounds like uh, it's not... uh, uh, some might object to that idea of uniting those two hearts. But the fact is that uh, before our Lord had a heart of his own, when he was a, a child, a preborn child growing in the womb of Mary, for the first, oh, say, all going on two months of his existence, um, he shared her heart. I've mentioned that before. Our Lord was conceived without a heart of his own. Um, the the programming for the formation of the heart was certainly in his DNA, but he received even what we know, the DNA, we didn't know that at the time, but we know it now, he received that DNA from Mary, our Blessed Lady, and there contained in the DNA were the necessarily blueprints for a human heart that would become his heart. But even that was built of the substance of Our Lady that was given to him, the nourishment that Our Lady's body gave to him built his heart. And until his heart began to function and beat for the very first time, her heart beat for both of them. Her heart was his heart for that during that time. And uh, when Our Lady took the, received the body down from the cross and his heart was stilled, uh, bringing together these two hearts, I mean, this was a, a very, very poignant moment, to say the least. Um, she knew of the resurrection. She knew what would happen. She's the only one who maintained faith over that Saturday that our Lord's body lay in the tomb. And again, you might say her heart beat for both of them during that time. But, um, you know, it it doesn't, it's a good thing for us to remember that when our Lord was a little child, he spent most of his time with his heart next to the heart of Mary, the sacred heart of Jesus in the arms of Mary near her immaculate heart. And that's where he loved to be. That's where he really loved to be, nearest the heart that understood him the best, right? That loved him the most, cherished him the most, was the most faithful, uh, humble enough, as it were, to uh, be completely in accord with his own will and his own heart. Who loved most in, 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 in accord with his own love. There you are, you know, there you have a, a sense... Um, our Lord born in, in Our Lady as a new Garden of Eden, you know, in which the first Adam was created in grace. So our Lord uh, loved that life, and he left it only to be about his father's business, as he said, right? Uh, so, um, but you can be sure that it was hard for our Lord to leave that haven, as it were, of Our Lady's own heart. But he, he had one thing in mind that is doing the will of the Father. Something that Mary, the Blessed Mother, understood perfectly. So anyway, here we have these two hearts, the Immaculate Heart that we honored last uh, month in May, and the, the heart that she brought into the world, the heart of her Son, our Lord. And uh, that's the heart we focus on during this, during this month of June. Okay, well, thank you for that, Father. Very beautiful. And uh, thank you for everything that you do and oh, for being welcome, here tonight. Ben. Appreciate your time. Well, that's mutual. Thank you, Tom.
Thank you to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima. Consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.